You're listening to the weekly teaching podcast of Beaverton Christian Church in Beaverton, Oregon. We hope that what you hear today inspires you to laugh, question, think, and grow. If you'd like to connect with us even further, hit us up online at beaverton.cc or shoot us a direct message on Instagram or Facebook. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Thank you for joining us online. I'm Grant Hickman, one of the pastors here, and I can't wait to continue this series that we've been in for the past couple of weeks called The Greatest Stories Rarely Told. You know, we've been doing this for a little while now, and we're going to continue to do it through the summer. And as we're doing it, looking at these uh, little uh, stories throughout the Bible that, that maybe aren't as familiar to you, maybe aren't quite as well known, we're not just pulling them at random, or we actually took the core values of our church and we said, hey, we, we didn't pull these out of thin air. The Bible teaches on these. And so where does scripture teach on these in some of the more obscure stories? If you're not familiar with what our core values are, there are these three things, radical hospitality, uncommon humility, and sacrificial generosity. You see, we want to be people that embody these. And we didn't pull these out of thin air. We really did look at the Bible. We looked at the life of Jesus. And we said, Jesus demonstrates these in his life. And so we want to be individuals that live this out in everything that we do. But we don't want to just live these out and then stop right there. Because in all honesty, you could be radically hospitable, have uncommon humility, and be sacrificially generous and still not follow Jesus. These are things that we would love for everybody to do. But those of us that are following Jesus, we're doing it not for our own glory, our own sake, or our own reputation. We're doing it because we wanna have an undeniable kingdom impact. That we believe that God is king and we are in his kingdom and we get to serve him and that is a gift and a blessing to us. And so everything that we do, we wanna do to leverage his kingdom, not ours, so that we would have an undeniable kingdom impact. That if we were to step out of our family or our workplace or the city that we're in or the community that we're in or the neighborhood we're a part of, that there would be this feeling of something missing because we have stepped out of that. That our impact on the people around us would be absolutely undeniable, which is why we live for the three core values. Now, the thing about each one of these is they really tie one to another, right? That if you're gonna have uncommon humility, then you're gonna humble yourself before other people, which means that you will then sacrifice what you have for the sake of other people. You'll invite people into your life. And when you invite people in, well, that usually costs you something. And if it's gonna cost you something, then you have to be able to do things for them, not for you, which is then humility. And so they all sort of tie one to another. They flow in and out of each other. And so in the story we're going to look at today, I want you to see and I want you to, to really listen for all three of the core values. Now, we've been focusing in this series so far on sacrificial generosity. And we're starting to move now into that core value of radical hospitality. But for today's sermon, I'm really going to focus on both of them. We're going to look at sacrificial generosity and radical hospitality. But you're going to see uncommon humility in the text if you'll pay attention for it. But, but speaking of hospitality, have you ever been hosted well? I mean, I mean like, like really hosted well, where you can tell that someone put forethought into you coming and into you being there. 
You see, in our world today, we have what's called the hospitality industry. But in that, there's an exchange of goods. I'm coming and I'm paying for the hotel service. I'm paying for the food. It's different when someone hosts you in their home, where you just show up and you haven't paid anything. They're just hosting you well. They have details that show that they thought of you before you came and they prepared a place for you. I remember a couple of times that, that I was hosted really, really well. It happened on a trip when I was in Morocco. You see, my senior year of college, I was a part of a group of people that in order for, for me to graduate college, I had to go to Morocco and, and teach a class to some college students there. And so we, we got on our plane and then when we went over to Morocco and while we were there, I got to have two of the best meals I've ever had in my life. Oh, one of those meals was we were invited to the home of the president of the university. And now when I say I was invited to his home, I don't think the house that he lived in. Think his family's historical estate in the city. And we walked in and it was this old, I mean, ancient, beautiful Moroccan building with mosaic tiles, a courtyard in the middle with a fountain that was working, these beautiful arches, these, these candles and these light fixtures that were amazing. And in fact, it was so historical and so beautiful that he donated a portion of it to be a museum so that the people in the city could come and continue to know about the history of that place. And I got to be, have dinner there and, and he hosted us and, and the, the food was extravagant. The conversation was great. And it was clear that he had prepared and spent money to host us well. And the second one was uh, we got to go and eat dinner at the home of the number one architect in all of North Africa. And, and we got to go to his actual home. And man, we walked in, he's an architect. It, he had paid attention to every single detail. His home was set up for hosting with this huge table that he could have a lot of people around, a, a big window that had this bench seating all the way around it where we could sit to and have our appetizers and our desserts. And then as we were there, he walked us into his backyard in the middle of the city. And there he had an infinity edge swimming pool. And I didn't even know that those existed at the time, but it was fantastic. And it was just this beautiful, beautiful home that he'd opened up to share with us. But then I'll never forget, he starts bringing out the fruit platter that we were gonna have as our appetizer. And there were grapes that were the size of our strawberries and strawberries that were the size of figs. And I was going, I didn't even know that fruit was this big. I mean, I'm just a dude who grew up in the panhandle of Texas. Texas, we can't even grow fruit. Like I didn't even know this stuff existed and it was such a great evening. And I know that it cost he and his family time and money to host us well. You see, if we're going to be sacrificially generous, then that's going to lead to radical hospitality that we would create spaces that we would invite people into, that they could come and be a part of our lives. You know, I love the way that uh, Dr. Christine Pohl of Asbury College defines hospitality. She says, hospitality is making room for people in a place where unless you invited them in, they wouldn't feel free to come. That hospitality is creating a space that unless you invite the person into it, they're not gonna wanna come. There's no way that I would have gone to, to that ancient home in Morocco unless the president invited me in. There's no way I'm getting to step into the home of this great architect if he doesn't invite me in. They had created a space where I would not have felt free to come unless they invite me. Today, we're gonna be looking at a story in 2 Samuel chapter nine. 
And we're going to see a story of, of a man who is king that invites someone into his presence and then builds a relationship with him that's going to last for a long time where this individual that's invited in would not have felt welcomed unless the king had invited him. This man is a man named King David. But before David becomes king, he's a shepherd out in the wilderness just tending to sheep. And then there's a moment where he's anointed to be king and he begins to serve in the household of Saul. Saul is the current king. And there's one day where David is eating in his presence and Saul knows that David is gonna be the next king and Saul doesn't like that and he's not very hospitable. So he grabs his spear and tries to kill David and David has to flee. And now David doesn't know if he's welcome in that space anymore, but he's become best friends with Jonathan. Jonathan is the son of King Saul. He's become best friends with him. And so they create this little plan for Jonathan to test whether or not David would be welcome into the palace again. And sure enough, he's not gonna be welcome. And so David has to run. He has to flee all of his family and all that he's known and becomes a fugitive. In the middle of the time where David is out and, and sort of building his own reputation, some people called the Edomites come and attack Israel. And they're trying to take the land from Israel. And so multiple battles over multiple years break out. And it's in one of these battles that it gets to this frenzy in a moment and the tide turns and the Edomites are going to win the battle. And in the middle of that, Saul and Jonathan both die. Now in the ancient Near Eastern world, when a king died in battle, inevitably, and you know this, someone is going to come and rise to power in that moment. And if there is no bloodline heir of the king that has just died, then that vacuum creates a ton of chaos. And so when word gets back to Jonathan's family that both Saul and Jonathan have died, they gather all of their things and all of their belongings that they can and all of their family and friends, and they flee the palace. And as they're running out of the palace, one of the servants accidentally drops the four-year-old boy, Mephibosheth. This is Jonathan's son. And for whatever reason, however it happened in the chaos of the moment when he is dropped, he then becomes lame in both of his feet. David, who's been anointed to be the next king, steps into being king and continues to fight against the Edomites and even some other countries that were attacking Israel. He eventually comes to a spot where he's defeated all of the enemies around him and he's become famous for these battles. And this is where we're gonna pick up in 2 Samuel chapter eight. David became famous when he returned from defeating the Edomites in the Valley of Salt. He defeated 18,000 people in all. He then placed garrisons throughout Edom and all of the Edomites became David's subject. The Lord protected David wherever he campaigned or wherever he went, right? Then David reigned over all of Israel. He guaranteed justice for all of his people. So David finally brings in some peace to Israel. We think this is about 16 years after Saul's death in that battle. And so David has been king for a while now, but this is the first moment of peace that he has, the first moment to reflect. And so he decides to say, hey, you know what? That justice, I, I'm gonna become a king that, that fights for peace and that fights for justice for my people. And so he sets it up and as he's there and he's kind of comfortable and he gets to relax a little bit, David begins to reflect on what he's going to do going forward. 
He is the new king after all. And since peace is there and justice is finally able to be served among the people, he was to make right some wrongs that have happened. And it's with this mindset of making right the wrongs that we want to pick up the story again, this rarely told story in 2 Samuel chapter 9. So then David asked, is anyone still left from the family of Saul? So that I may extend kindness to him for the sake of Jonathan. And now there was a servant from Saul's house named Ziba. And so he was summoned to David. The king asked him, hey, are you Ziba? And he replied, yes, I'm here. I'm, I'm at your service. The king said, is there someone left? from Saul's family that I could extend God's kindness to. Ziba said to the king, well, one of Jonathan's sons is left. Both of his feet are crippled, however. And so the king asked him, well, where is he? Ziba told the king, he's at the house of Makir, son of Emil in Lodabar. And so David had him brought from that house of Makir, son of Emil in Lodabar. Then Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David. He bowed low with his face towards the ground and David said, Mephibosheth, who then replied, yes, I am here. I am at your service. David said to him, hey, listen, don't be afraid. I will certainly extend kindness to you for the sake of Jonathan, your father. I will give back to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will be a regular guest at my table. And then the king summoned, then Mephibosheth rather bowed down and said, of what importance am I, your servant, that you show regard for a dead dog like me? The king summoned Ziba, Saul's attendant, and said to him, everything that belonged to Saul and to his entire house, I hereby give to your master's grandson. You will cultivate the land for him. You and your sons and your servants, you will bring its produce and it will be food for your and your master's grandson to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, he will become a regular. He's going to be a regular guest at my table. And then this little note that Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. And so this is this story of David having just become king. And there's a couple of things that I think we need to look at that we need to, to pay attention to in this text. First, it is absolutely unexpected that David would do this. There is no one that thinks David is going to extend the grace and the mercy of God. Oh, yeah, yeah. They know that that's what he said. Hey, hey, Ziba, is there anyone from Saul's household that is still alive? I want to be kind to them. And, and Ziba's response tips off that he doesn't really believe David here because he goes, yeah, yeah, David. David, there, there's one, sir, there's one guy that's left. His, his name's Mephibosheth, but don't forget He's lame in both of his feet. As if to say, hey, David, there's one guy that's still alive, but he's lame. He's no threat to you. There's nothing he could do. Please leave him alone. And that's understandable because every king that had come before David, if you were gonna come into that and, and then ask for that servant or ask the servant of someone alive, they knew that that meant you were going to kill them, that you were gonna go do that. I mean, after all, if you're a member of the five families or if you're the godfather and there's a threat to the, the throne that you have, the, the world that you create, you wanna take those threats out, not only the person, but then their son and their grandson because they could raise up and eventually come because vengeance has a long memory. That's not what David is doing. He's going, no, I want to invite Mephibosheth in because I want to bless him. Mephibosheth knows that this isn't what is normally done because he shows up on the scene and he immediately bows down to David and says, I am at your service. This is a way of him paying honor to the king and saying, hey, David, this is your kingdom now and whatever you need from me, I will serve you because he understands that he's being invited into a place that he should not be. 
But in this moment, when everyone is expecting David to wield his sword or to extend the sword, he instead extends his hand of friendship and service. Remember what it said in verse 7? Don't be afraid because I will certainly extend kindness to you for the sake of Jonathan, your father. In fact, I will give back to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul. Yeah, the guy that tried to kill me. And you will be a regular guest at my table. You see, in their culture, Mephibosheth would have been seen as having not earned this sort of hospitality, to not earned this kind of generosity from the king. But that's the thing about if you're going to be generous, if you're going to be hospitable, you do it to people not because they earned it, but because you understand that's been extended to you and now you extend it to other people. David as king had a right to all of Saul's things, all of his land, all of the produce from that land, all of the cattle and the crops and the livestock from that land to get that, to glean money for himself, to pat his own pockets, to build his own kingdom. And and what had been modeled for him, if you remember, as I said earlier, was that that David was once in the palace of Saul serving him and there being at his service. And Saul tried to kill him in that moment. And so what had been modeled for David was you invite someone in, but if they're a threat to you, you take them out. That's not at all what David did. This is so countercultural to what everyone expected. Mephibosheth doesn't feel like he deserves it. Here's what it says in the next verse. Then Mephibosheth bowed down and said, of what importance am I your servant that you show regard for a dead dog like me? A dead dog like me. You know, when we spend the time, the money, the energy, to prepare spaces to invite people in to those spots. If we do it well, then the people we invite in never feel like they deserve it. They're going, why would you do this for me? I'm a nobody. I told you about those two great meals that I had in Morocco. And in both of those instances, I was sitting there going, there's no way I should have been invited here. I'm just a random college student that's here and I'm getting to eat in these prestigious places and have this amazing food and this great company. But you know, there was another meal that I had in Morocco. That was the one that I went, man, there's no way I should even be here. And that was when we were further out in the countryside away from the big cities. There's a Berber people group there called the Amazigs. And the Amazigs, they're Moroccan, but but they aren't Muslim. And and Morocco is a Muslim nation. And so to be Muslim is to to worship Allah and is to speak the language. And and because they're Berber, they were not allowed to have their own language. And they were forced to worship the God that the Muslims worship. And so they were this small people group that was continually persecuted for who they were. They were marginalized. They were outsiders. And many of them had come to know Jesus because of the freedom of life that he can give like nobody else can. And it was there among the Amazigs that they invited us into their home. And we were invited into this small people group and they didn't have extravagant rooms with ornate tiles and fountains in the courtyard. There was no infinity pool and there was not giant fruit. 
We sat around a table together in a room that had one single light bulb hanging from the ceiling in a kitchen off of that. We all sat on our left hand and only used our right hand to eat because where they are, you use your left hand for something very different. And so you only eat with your right. And what they brought out on the table in front of us was roasted chicken and French fries. And I sat there eating with these people who had so much life and vitality and were sacrificially sharing with us in a way that the wealthy in the city didn't, even though they still did. These people were sacrificing so much more. But they did it not to show off what they had, but because they knew Jesus and they wanted to show what Jesus had done for them. That was the moment where I sat there and I went, I don't deserve to be here. Why would you open up your home for me? Like, I know the house I grew up in. I know the place of privilege and prestige that I come from. And I should be serving you. You shouldn't be serving me. I'm not marginalized or ostracized in my society like they were. And yet they gladly and willingly opened up and hosted us well. You see, when you prepare a space for someone to host or to host people, and they show up, if we're doing it well as followers of Jesus, they should step back and go, whoa, 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 whoa. This doesn't make sense to me. Why are you doing this? But it shouldn't just stop with a one-time thing. It should continue on and be a habitual lifestyle for us. In fact, we see that David even goes above and beyond just the one meal of peace with Mephibosheth. Remember, here's what it says as the story goes on. The king summoned Ziba in. So now they're sitting there eating David and Mephibosheth in the same room. And he invites Ziba back in and he says to him, listen, everything that belonged to Saul and to his entire house, I hereby give to your master's grandson. So so Ziba, you will go and cultivate the land for him. You and your sons and your servants, you will bring its produce and it will be food for your master's grandson to eat. But Mephibosheth, Man, your master's grandson, he will be a regular guest at my table. David goes, I'm going to go above and beyond. I am going to to invite Mephibosheth into my house, but then I'm going to make sure that he is provided for in perpetuity. You see, David had every single right to the wealth of that field for himself, and yet he sacrificially gave it away to Mephibosheth and to his entire household and by proxy to Ziba and his entire household. And he did it not for what he could gain from it, but because he had been loved by God and was a friend to Jonathan. You see, David went above and beyond the call that he he had to do. And there's something in this text that I don't want us to miss, though. You see, in this text, I so often want to look at it and go, man, I I want to be David. I want to be the person that gets to be radically hospitable and so sacrificial generosity. And yes, some uncommon humility. Like, Like, I want to be David here, but I have to remind myself that I was Mephibosheth before I was ever David. That Mephibosheth is me. That when I was fallen and broken and hiding for the shame of the things that I had done and that had been done to me, and that I was afraid that if I ever got called into the palace of the king and the light shone on it, that he would be disappointed in me and kill me and wipe me out, that that's not at all what happened, that God does like David did. 
that David took the initiative to seek out Mephibosheth in the same way that God took the initiative in Jesus to come down and humble himself and become man and enter into relationship with me. That despite how everyone else saw the lameness of Mephibosheth, that David saw him and brought him into his house and into his presence, then went the step further to even basically adopt him in as a son is a part of his own family. That David shared his resources, his fellowship with this undeserving one, not for what Mephibosheth had done, but what Jonathan had done. You see, when David looked at Mephibosheth, he did not see a crippled young man. He saw Jonathan. And when God, our father, looks at you and me, he does not see crippled, shameful, sinful individuals. He sees Jesus. He sees someone that his son has died for and risen from the dead for. And when we begin to understand that, it is why these core values become core values that we don't just say out loud or put on a wall. We begin to live them out as true of life. So how do we begin in light of what God has done for us to live these out? I want to give you maybe just some very simple but very practical ways to begin to do this or to continue doing this. Uh, the first one is this. Would you invite one new family into your home each month this summer? Would you invite one new family into your home each month, each month this summer? Uh, would you invite them in? Well, what do we do when we invite them? I, I don't know. Be human, right? <laughs> like, like you play games, you, you talk, you, you eat well. I already told you like my three stories about hospitality all had to do with food. So for me, hospitality and food, they, they go together, right? Have, have a happy hour at your house. Hear the stories of the people. Get to know them with no strings attached, no agenda except to get to know them. And maybe you invited a whole family. Maybe the family you invite is one person that you invite. And maybe you take a time when you go, hey, you know what, kids? Here's what we're going to do. One Sunday a month, each of you gets to invite your friends, just one friend over for dinner. And we're going to just have dinner with all of your friends so that you begin to teach this in to your children. And I know the moment I say something like invite someone into your life like this or host a party, there's... There's kind of two groups of people. There's some of you in the room that are like, yes, I'm the extrovert. Like, this is awesome. Let's throw the party. I can't wait to do this. And there's others in the room that are like, no, no, whoa, whoa, whoa. That sounds really good and fine and dandy and all. But like, I'm an introvert. And like, like, we don't do that. But this is the beauty of the call of having radical hospitality is that we sacrifice ourselves for other people. And so if you're the introvert going, I don't know, then maybe what this looks like is, is spending some time and going, okay, then I'm going to plan the party to invite people into because it's not about me, it's about them. And I'm going to do the individual one-on-one -on -one time or, or by myself time that I need to fuel up with energy. And then I'm going to invite God into my life to say, Holy Spirit, give me the energy to go and to interact with these people and to listen to them and to hear them. And if you're on the other extreme, maybe you're the, the big extrovert and you're like, yeah, let's throw the party. Let's have fun. Maybe what you need to do is go, yeah, yeah. but remember, it's not all about you. And so invite them in, but, but don't be the person that's the life of the party because you're going to get energy from the people there and you're going to have a tendency to make it all about you. And instead you go, no, I'm going to step back and humble myself and make it all about them. I'm going to host in a way that they feel special, not that I feel special. I'm going to ask questions about them rather than always talk about me that we would just begin to say, God, I need even your help to invite just one family into my home each month this summer. And then beyond that, you can begin to plan throughout the entire year. 
You could go, you know what? We're going to plan quarterly for a larger group. And then I'm going to just say, you know what? Four times a year, we're going to just host people at our house. And maybe it's through your home community and you invite your home community to invite their friends. And now you share the burden and the load of the generosity that it's going to take to host really well. And you say, okay, we're going to share that. Or maybe you just go, hey, you know what? My kids have been inviting one friend and now we're going to have a party where we invite their whole family or their parents in and say, hey, our kids all know each other, but like, let's get to know each other as well. This introduces new people to new people and you have no idea what God's gonna do in those connections that just in the same way that as David blessed Mephibosheth, it also blessed Ziba's entire family, that if you would be willing to bless a family, you don't know the ripple effect of how many others that can benefit. But then in all of this, in our planning of monthly and weekly or daily or quarterly or whatever that rhythm looks like, that we would just become people that consistently look for opportunities to invite others. That David came to this moment where he stepped back and he evaluated his life and he went, wait, I need to invite someone into a space that unless they are invited, they wouldn't feel comfortable coming. And so we look for opportunities to invite people. Maybe it's to invite them to your home. Maybe it's to invite them to church. Maybe it's to invite them to coffee. Maybe it's an opportunity to say, you know what? I'm going to write them a card because I want to invite them into a relationship. And one of the best ways to do that is to let them know that they are seen and heard. So you say, thank you as a first step. You send them the gift that you say the prayer, that you buy them the coffee, that you reach out, that you open the door for the stranger, that you just simply look for opportunities that might end up being invitations. To say, how can I create a life that invites people in? that we would remember that the positions that we sit in life, that just as David sat in a position of power and prestige, he didn't wield that in a way in this story for his own selfish gain, but on behalf of a young man that was marginalized because of an accident that had happened to him. And so I have to find opportunities and become someone that sees with eyes like God sees. The heart of God is to invite all to himself that he's invited every single one of us into a space that we would not have felt comfortable if he had not invited us first. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, then let's find opportunities and seek and ask God to reveal to us places to invite people in to our lives. Because we want to model Jesus and his sacrificial generosity, his uncommon humility, his radical hospitality, so that we would have an undeniable kingdom impact. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the story of David, that he did something that was counter-cultural, that he invited Mephibosheth into his house, but not just him, his household and, and many others. God, as we model our lives after Jesus, we thank you for being a God that invited us in. As I just learn more and more about how much you love me, God, would that just overflow out of my life into loving others in radical, radical ways. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray this. Amen. Thanks again for joining us online today. I'm glad that you could be here. 
you know, I, we would love to get better connected with you. And so maybe you just right now are going, man, I just miss worship. You know, our team has done an amazing job of, of capturing moments of worship. So there's a link right there that you can click on and it'll take you over to YouTube where there's just multiple recordings of things where you can gather together with people and, and worship online. Or maybe you're going, no, I, I, just, I just need some prayer right now. Or, or I wanna know what it means to follow Jesus. Or I just wanna get better connected. Those are all their opportunities for you. Because here at Beaverton Christian Church, we love that you're with us online, but we would love to connect with you in person as well. And so reach out to us. Let us know how we can serve you as we continue to strive after Jesus together.